afterwards, you know, Michael, you're right about that. And if you go back into the Middle Ages, which the modern intellectual community refers to as the Dark Ages, if you go back into the Middle Ages, you'll find that it was understood to be a part of piety that you would not try to turn away from and leave behind the station into which you'd been born. And it it had a visible manifestation in that I explained that at the time of the kings, nobody was allowed to wear ermine except the king. And it wasn't because ermine was, you know, somehow going to give a rash to, to, to lower people if they wore. It was because it was a signifier. It was something that pointed to the office. And so somebody who didn't have the office shouldn't usurp the, the reputation of royalty. This is so foreign to our minds that for me to throw it into a sermon at this time is a little bit dangerous because you could spend the rest of this morning just thinking about that. Because it really does go against our culture. But stop and ask yourself the question, uh, what did Satan do? He did what an American should do. He said, I'm not content with the station that I've been given. I deserve something more. And if you think about Eve in the garden, Eve did what? She listened to Satan when Satan said what? What did Satan say to Eve that deceived her? He said to her that God was really threatened by the idea that she would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that if she would go ahead and go against God's command, that then she would be what? Basically equal with God. And so we see both with Satan and with Eve, neither of them were content in the station into which they'd been born. And both of them demanded that they be lifted up. And so we think of pride and we think of how both with Adam and Eve, we think of Satan how pride was so destructive and has caused so much pain and suffering. I was reading something this last week where somebody was writing about uh, men when they get together and, uh, and begin to talk as kings, as presidents, as prime ministers, and that there comes a time in their relationship where they have to decide whether or not they're going to walk into war and that often it's caused by them fearing that they will appear weak. This was not a Christian document. It was just somebody writing about the affairs of state. And they were saying that a lot of the danger in life comes when men fear that they will appear weak. What is that? That's pride. Um, we think about uh, churches and, and congregational meetings where there are fi- there's fighting. And so often the fighting in a congregational meeting is a fight for who will be the greatest, fights in elders' boards. It's a fight over who will have the primacy of position. Well, I should stop there, right? But let's get personal. So what kind of church should we be and what kind of building should we have? And what kind of music should we have on Sunday morning? I remember somebody who came into our church as a new Christian saying to me, Tim, the good thing about Church of the Good Shepherd is that Church of the Good Shepherd um, is an easy transition for people out of mainline churches. The, the people that come here from a United Methodist and the United Church of Christ and Episcopal and Presbyterian feel at home. And this was back when we didn't have a band. Because our church was carefully measured and modulated so that people who were of high social class would come in and feel comfortable leaving a liberal environment and coming into a conservative one. 
Now, what about a building? What does a building say about a church? Well, you say it says nothing. Doug Wilson says it says much about God, not about the church. And I say, you know, it always is the truth that our preferences can, can be made to have principles. You know, I, I've often said that a pastor, uh, unguarded, a pastor can make a case for plain, painting a sanctuary black and say that it has theological justification. And we all know that a sanctuary shouldn't be black, right? I mean, the point is that the pastor's being um, a pastor. <laughs> so then you go into the issue of architecture and you say, well, can architecture be proud? What about clothing? I... <laughs> I was talking to somebody recently and saying that uh, we have had a number of discussions in elders meetings about what clothing we ought to wear and what kind of uh, um, message we should give to the congregation about us as elders. And at one time we were discussing whether when elders serve communion, the elders should uh, have coats and ties on. And Doug Ummel, who is my son-in-law, variously known as Archie, was at our house this last week and we were discussing this around Thanksgiving. And Doug said, you know, it's kind of twisted to get done with work and to dress down to go to church. All right. Sounds good, doesn't it? But exactly why is it that Doug wears a coat and tie to go to work and what work does he do? Well, Doug works in investments. So is it... Is it necessarily true that he should be better dressed in church than he is when he sells investments? And, 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 and is there any possibility of pride in that? Any. Did you notice that Professor Bradley last week, when he spoke, did not have a tie on? Why was that? Was it because he was proud or humble or neither? Now, this gets a little painful because all of us have our preferences with our clothing and our preferences usually we say other people should follow them. But don't think you have an easy answer to the question when you say, well, we ought to dress up for church. Because if our dressing up for church sends messages to people who come in here that we are better than they are and that if they become a Christian, they will dress like we dress. It's not serving God's purposes. It's serving our purposes. It's really signaling a social class. So I've said to people, and you'll be, you'll be horrified by this, but I really would like to wear a robe on Sunday morning. And you say, robe, that's proud. And I say, no, a robe is an office. I don't mind using the word reverend with my name when I sign a letter in public. It doesn't mean that I'm holy. Everybody knows it doesn't mean that. It just means I'm set apart to the office of a pastor. So... Pride. Now, you come into your home. I've been talking about the church, but go into your home. What do your cars, what does your house, uh, what does your dining room table signify to the people that are guests in your home? Is it a proud table? Think of the issue of hospitality for women. Think of how much what we do as women, we, I'm not a woman. <laughs> Last time I checked. Um, what do women signify? What, what message do they send through the way that the table is set and what the priorities are around the table? Now, I'm going to come back to where I started. I'm going to say that pride 
is the mother of all sins. Pride is the mother of all sins. And if it's the mother of all sins, it's at least as sophisticated as lust and greed. In other words, just because you think you know what is humility and what is pride and, and where you're humble and where you're, you're, you're proud, of course you never get to the where you're proud. But just because you think you know doesn't mean you do know. The Westminster Shorter Catechism's first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer goes, man's chief end is to glorify himself and to enjoy himself forever. Now, normally I do that with scripture, but that's actually not what it says. (laughs) Okay? What does it say? Repeat it with me. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I want to read to you, last night, I, happiness, uh, as we go to the Magnificat, we see that, that Mary, the Virgin Mary, is, is, is supremely happy. And uh, we see this man's chief end is to glorify God. Well, that seems the opposite of what America is all about. America is all about glorifying ourselves. And we think that as we glorify ourselves and lift ourselves up in the opinion of men, that we will become happier. And last night I went on, well, Hannah was sitting next to me, and we began to search for websites that have to do with happiness. And this is a researcher, uh, I won't give you his name, but he has a few uh, ways, actually one website we went on uh, was um, a woman's website, New Age, kind of, you know, believe in yourself. Like Hannah said, it's everything you've ever heard at every commencement address, all right? And, and I had my thing plugged in and was listening to iTunes as I, as I was working on the sermon. And the minute we searched to this website, we had this, this music came over the speakers, ditzy, like sort of uh, Klezman music, you know, it was like really weird. And it made me so happy, so very happy. Okay, well, this is another website about happiness. Research. Doesn't that just stroke you right? Research, research, based suggestions for a happier life. So this is on good research. This is empirically verifiable. All right? Okay, number one, realize that enduring happiness doesn't come from success. Okay? Number two, take control of your time. Happy people feel in control of their lives and so on. Number three, act happy. Some of you are miserable failures at that. (laughs) Come on, laugh. All right. We can sometimes act ourselves into a frame of mind. Manipulated into a smiling expression, people feel better. When they scowl, the whole world seems to scowl back. So put on a happy face. Oh, by the way, that site last night I was telling you about, it had all these happy faces in yellow across the top of the site. (laughs) Talk as if you feel positive self-esteem, are optimistic, and are outgoing. Going through the motions can trigger the emotions. Now, I'm not saying this is all false. Much of it is true. They've done... Well, never mind. All right. Number, Number four, seek work and leisure that engages your skills. Happy people often are in a zone called flow. 
Number five, join the movement movement. An avalanche of research reveals that aerobic exercise not only promotes health and energy, it also is an antidote for mild depression and anxiety. Sound minds reside in sound bodies. That sounds Christian, doesn't it? Number six, give your body the sleep it wants. Happy people live active, vigorous lives, yet reserve time for renewing sleep and solitude. Number seven, give priority to close relationships. Intimate friendships with those who care deeply about you can help you weather difficult times. Confiding is good for soul and body. Resolve to nurture your closest relationships. Number eight, focus beyond the self. Reach out to those in need. Happiness increases helpfulness. Doing good also makes one feel good. Number nine, keep a gratitude journal. And then number ten, and this is the crowning one, the final one, nurture your spiritual self. For many people, faith provides a support community a reason to focus beyond self and a sense of purpose and hope. Study after study finds that actively religious people are happier and that they cope better with crises. Now, I read it all for the last one because the last one is just wicked. Because what does it do? It reduces God to a method of happiness. Often, such people, and this is what permeates much of the conservative movement in our country, that God is a means to an end. Much of the evangelism done in our country is just simply saying to people that if you love Jesus, you'll get a wife or a husband. You know, what I variously characterize is God God loves you and has a wonderful man for your plan or a, a wonderful wife for your life. Now, let's read our scripture. Mary said, Now, my wife tells me I have to explain what I'm doing, so I'm going to stop and explain what I'm doing. I want you uh, nauseous about your pride and our pride as we read Mary, because I don't think you'll hear Mary until you see how pride owns you. And me. And Mary said what? What did Mary say? Mary said, My soul exalts myself. Now Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, you'll remember that the angel came and told Mary that she was blessed. Uh, Luke 1, the same chapter, verse 42 The angel said to her, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your... Excuse me, this is Elizabeth saying that. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And Mary has had the angel announce her birth, and then Mary has gone to visit Elizabeth. And if you look at verse 39, you'll see that after she heard the news about the coming of this little one in her womb that she arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah. And uh, that little phrase, in a hurry, shows that she is just filled with this news. And when she comes to Elizabeth, Elizabeth prophesies about Mary, what I just read. And in a way, John the Baptist also prophesies, because we see up above that... the. When, he, uh, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, he, the baby, who was John the Baptist, who was inside his mother Elizabeth's womb, he leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's no question at all from the text that this baby in the womb of Elizabeth was prophesying in the womb, as a prophet, was prophesying about his Messiah, who was present. Both in the womb, and you have to, every Christmas, hit this very hard. Unborn children are human beings made in the image of God, and to kill them is murder. And it's not a small thing. I believe that the central reality in our nation today is the open season on unborn children that our law justifies and and endorses. And uh, this is true all over the world today. Somewhere between 50 and 75 million unborn children are killed every single year in, in this world. And, you know, we talk about the deaths in Iraq, and they're insignificant compared to what goes on in our nation, blood and flesh in our nation. And so don't ever read this account of John the Baptist leaping in his mother's womb, clearly in, in, in demonstrating uh, his, his joy in being in the presence of his Messiah. And uh, think that an unborn child is just a blob of flesh. It's not. Okay, I have to say that every Christmas because it's the most visible manifestation in Scripture of something that directly addresses a matter that all of our hearts should be broken over. Then we move on, and after Elizabeth is prophesied and after John the Baptist is prophesied, then Mary prophesies. And if you look at the text, what you'll see is that Mary says just a few things. Number one, she points to the way, the habit, the method of God in dealing with people by what? By lifting up the oppressed, lifting up the sad and the lonely and the abandoned and the poor and the sick and and the elderly and, and the young. All right? Then she goes on. That part is easy for us. But then she goes on and she says the second habit or method of God is what? Look at the text. What's the second thing that God does? God, number one, lifts those who are low up. Number two, God does what? What's the second thing God does? God casts the high down. 
And Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary, takes delight in this. She is delighted to announce to her uh, relatives and to the world, as we have the record of what she said, she is delighted to announce that the rich and the proud, the Americans, are cast down. All right? And then she goes on, and the third thing she says is what? He has given help to Israel. Now, when you say Israel back then, you're referring to God's people. You're referring to the church. You're referring to Zion. All right? And it says he gives help to his people as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So the third thing she does is she says, God will lift up the oppressed and the downtrodden and the poor. God will tear down the high and mighty. And God will be faithful to his covenant promises. That's the outline of what Mary says. Now, the covenant promises come to us today, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. We are Israel today. And the church is not a slight thing to God. The church is filled with sin and failure and pride. The church has every kind of failure known to man. And yet the church of Jesus Christ is the thing that Jesus himself said the gates of hell would not prevail against. He loves and he died for and he is purchasing for himself a people, a church, a nation, a bride. And he loves her. But let's go back to the first thing that Mary says, namely that God delights in lifting up the oppressed and the poor and, and the no accounts in this world. Now, think about this for a second. Um, what exactly is the reason that Mary was called blessed? What exactly is it that causes Mary to stand out all across time? Now, you, you rightly answer because she was the vessel that held uh, the unborn Messiah, and she was the mother of Jesus, and that's true. But why was she given that honor? It was an honor, certainly. But why was she given the honor? And there are two things you can say here. You can say that Mary was given the honor. Why? Some of you grew up Roman Catholic. Help me out. Because she was what? She was sinless. Because Mary was perfect. She was given the honor because she was perfect. All right? And the other option you have is that Mary was given the honor because why? Because she was what? Come on, speak up. Because she was humble. Now, let me ask you the question. Um, how different is it to say that Mary was given the blessing because she was perfect and Mary was given the blessing because she was humble? Isn't humility perfection? Why was Mary given the blessing? Well, you get my point. Protestants can have Mary up on a pedestal just as high as the Roman Catholics do. We can see Mary as such a beautiful, humble, chaste, modest, self-effacing woman that obviously that was the vessel that God should choose. Is that the truth? Exactly why does Mary say she was chosen? For he has regard for the humble what? State of his bond slave. Now, that's not the same thing as saying she was chosen because she was humble. Right? There's a great difference between being of humble state and being humble. In other words, Mary is saying that the reason she was chosen was that she was such a nothing that all the glory would go to God. 
And if you look at the, if you look at the, the original language here, the Greek, what you'll find is that Mary is actually referring to her condition, not just in a socioeconomic, a financial humility, but a spiritual humility, a spiritual need, a sinful condition. In other words, the reason Mary was chosen was that it would be clear that it was all of God. And then you go back to the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Virgin Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and you see that it is completely flipped upside down everything Scripture says about Mary. I mean, think about it for a second. She was of a low estate. She was despised by the world as poor. She acknowledges that it was no worth of her own at all. It was all God and his goodness to her. She emptied herself and she elevated God alone. And she said she was blessed because what the world had despised, God had exalted. So when we say that Mary is blessed, it is God we really honor. Now, if you look for Mary talking about herself and her own emotions and her own uh, spiritual condition... She simply doesn't do it. It is all God-centered. There is no place for worshiping Mary here if we follow her example, which is a greater compliment or honor. To say first that God honored Mary because she was a great and worthy woman, or second, that God honored Mary so that he might receive glory. The greatest honor of all is not found in the presence of good traits and virtues in an individual, but rather in the fact that in that individual, God has chosen to place good traits and virtues. We should praise Mary then in the way that she praises herself here in this passage, that though I was a no account, God chose to show his glory through me. Imagine that through me. It's very interesting to think of how down through the ages... uh, if, if you look at the statement of the angel, Gabriel, in verse 28, who says to Mary, greetings, favored one, the Greek root of the favored one is the word charis, which is the name of uh, Chris and Leslie's oldest daughter. Uh, okay, charis. And charis is the Greek for most of you, many of you know. What is it? Grace. And if you think of the uh, rosary, Some of you grew up Roman Catholic. Repeat the beginning of the rosary for us, please. Can somebody do it? Okay, now say it very loudly, please. Okay. Hail Mary, full of grace. Now, what is the meaning of grace? Grace is unmerited favor. And yet, the church today takes that very person, Mary, and says that she has produced a superabundance of merit. Supererogation works, all right? Works of supererogation. Works that are so holy... Now, am I getting this right, David? That the church accrues a treasury of merit that the Pope can sell for money. This is Roman Catholic doctrine. 
All right? And yet the word is grace. And grace is unmerited favor. Grace is something that God, in his glory, places in man as a vessel. Not something that he recognizes in man and then lets everybody know about, but something that God pours into us. And so here is Mary, and she is saying what? God recognized that I was a vessel worthy that's absolutely contrary to the spirit and the words of of the blessed Virgin Mary. It's absolutely contrary. Now, fine, the Roman Catholic Church isn't right to ever speak in any way other than the humility of Mary and that God, therefore, was glorified through her because she had nothing human to commend her, right? We all are there now, right? Okay? But now let's look at Mary today. What would feminists do with Mary? It's exactly the same thing. It's making out of Mary or making out of Eve, and usually they choose Eve over Mary. Sort of a a person who seizes her destiny. You know, someone who... um, You know, can't you just hear the sermon that goes on and on about how Mary was, you know, the first disciple and the first apostle, and Mary sets for all the time of the church how women are to seize the day. You know, Mary seized the day. The angel came to her and she seized the day. You know, I mean, how would you do it today? Well, you certainly wouldn't do it by having Mary very, very humbly uh, give a prayer and a prophecy and a public act of worship, not a public, a private, but she was there with Elizabeth and John the Baptist and Jesus, uh, that was filled with words from the Old Testament where the principal thing she gloried in was that she did not deserve any good from God and yet God had given her this great, great gift. And I wonder about us as a church and us as individuals and us as families. I wonder whether, uh, if you look back with me at Ezekiel, turn with me please to Ezekiel chapter 16. This is the constant theme of scripture about those that God calls to himself. In Ezekiel 16, beginning with verse 2, we read, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abomination. So here we're dealing again with the church, the people of God, Israel, Jerusalem. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I pass by you, and today this would be the aborted children, because back then... Children weren't aborted as often as they were abandoned. So this was a child that was left on the hills to die. 
And when I passed by you and I saw you squirming in your blood, now imagine a more humiliating situation than being left naked as a newborn on the hill behind the house squirming in your blood. And when I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field and then you grew up and became tall and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown and yet you were naked and bare. Brothers and sisters, this is you and me. This is who we are. We were on the hillside naked in our blood and God came and said live. And so if you take pride in the fact that you go to a church that holds to Scripture, that you in your home uh, are not divorced, that uh, you have family devotions, that, um, you know, I could go on and on, but let's stop. If you take pride in anything, you are completely contrary to the spirit of Mary that God was pleased to put in her. We were naked and God reached down into the cesspool And he lifted us out. And that has to be our glory. Now, one final thing, and I have to end. Ask yourself this. Now, I'm going to use the university as an example, but it could could be just as true in your your union shop. It could be just as true uh, at, at, at the feed store. If Mary were to go on the campus of Indiana University today and say what she said here, Would she be seen as humble? Look at it. My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Now ask yourself, would she be perceived to be humble? For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart, and so on. Would Mary be seen to be humble on the campus of Indiana University? And the answer is absolutely not. Because Mary is completely exclusive in pointing to the only true God, Mary claims that she knows that true God and that she is a vessel for his work in this world. And if you make that claim on the campus of Indiana University, you will be lampooned as being arrogant, as being selfish, as being smug, as being moralistic, as every word that goes against the diversity culture that you're in. In other words, those who are proud will claim that Mary is arrogant. And it is only those who are humble who will see Mary's humility. So don't think that if you adopt the spiritual blessings of Mary, that all of a sudden everybody will recognize your humility. No, you will appear to be even prouder than you are now. But it will be your glory and your humility to let them think that you are proud. I mean, you get that? Do you get it? You've got to get that. 
You've got to realize that for you to love Jesus Christ and to be a vessel for God's work in this world will always make you appear to be arrogant and proud to those who are proud and arrogant. That's such an important point. Well, if we're proud and arrogant, our pride and our arrogance will keep us from this table. But if we're humble, we will come to this table and claim that here we are partaking of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that in this simple meal is our hope for eternity. Not that the meal itself, that the bread and the wine are in any way uh, able to do things spiritually in and of themselves, but that as we approach the table in faith, believing in the work of Christ in our behalf, that God is pleased to meet us here and to fill us with humility, with grace, with everything that he filled Mary, and to do great things through us as he did through Mary. I'd ask the elders to come forward as we celebrate our Lord's Supper, please.